Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Good to see you here this morning. Uh, just a few things to go through. We want to remind you, if you are a member of Red Mills Baptist Church, that we will be having our annual members meeting following the service this morning. Uh, ladies, uh, please make note of June 10th and the uh, resumption of your study on the names of God. Uh, and that will be taking place in the classroom here uh, behind the, the piano. Uh, also on June 25th, mark your calendars for our next uh, congregational lunch and going deeper session. Um, we'll be talking that uh, Sunday afternoon about art. Uh, I have often um, playfully discussed my opinions on art and my lack of understanding. I have three weeks to gain some understanding of the biblical view of art. But that's what we're going to look at, a theology of aesthetics. How are we to understand art in a biblical context? And so we trust that you'll uh, plan on joining us not only for lunch, but also for going deeper afterwards. Uh, we had a great time yesterday at the men's breakfast. Uh, just a wonderful time of worship and praise and testimony and uh, sharing around the word of God. If you uh, qualify for the men's breakfast, um, then we would encourage you to come out and join us on the first Saturday morning of the month. Psalm 95 verses 6 and 7 say this, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Let's stand together. Oh, 
Father God, you are our God, and we have gathered here to praise you today. We may not be a thousand tongues, Father, but receive what we have to offer you this day in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please remain standing this morning for the reading of the word of God from Lamentations chapter 3. This morning we'll be reading Lamentations chapter 3. Uh, I'll be picking up the reading in verse 18, but uh, we'll read verses 18 through uh, 38 this morning. The reading of the holy, inspired, and errant word of God. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth, Let him sit alone and keep silent, because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him, and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion, according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men, to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the justice do a man before the face of the Most High, or subvert a man in his cause. The Lord does not approve. Who is he who speaks, and it comes to pass? When the Lord has commanded it, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? You may be seated. So up to this point in the book of Jeremiah, we've been seeing some very deep and heartfelt laments by the prophet as he works through the destruction of Jerusalem and the sufferings of the people as well as himself. And if you, re, uh, if you were here last week as we went through the first, uh, roughly, uh, I think we went through the first 18 verses of Lamentations 3, I, I commented last week that we saw no hope. <laughs> it was a very dark and difficult passage to read as Jeremiah um, felt the weight of, of the uh, affliction of, of God's people. And just some of the phrases that I just want to pull out for context. He said he was in darkness and not in light. He felt the Lord's hand was against him. He felt surrounded with bitterness and woe. He felt that his prayers were shut out. He was desolate. He felt as if he was a target of God's arrows. He was without peace and prosperity and without strength and hope. Now, when we read today's passage, we read in verse 21, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. So how did Jeremiah go from being a man in darkness and affliction and literally hopelessness So now, all of a sudden, he's a man with hope. What changed? 
What was the difference? And we find that profoundly, when Jeremiah took his eye off his circumstance and focused on the attributes of God and who God was, it totally changed his perspective. He first calls to mind the mercy of God. Mercy is when we get what we don't deserve. And in spite of the great affliction of the people, God's people still did not get what they deserved. And he remembers that it's the Lord's mercies were not consumed, and he reflects on the compassion of God, the compassion that is new every morning. And he cries out, great is thy faithfulness. God's faithfulness was displayed, yes, in the affliction of God's people because he was true to his word. He had promised and had warned the people that if they do not repent, this judgment would come. And true to his word, it did come. But God was also and will prove his faithfulness because he will call his people out from the land of exile and bring them back into their own land. A great picture of salvation, a great picture of God calling us from a place of captivity into the kingdom of his dear son. And God showed his faithfulness then, and he will continue to show his faithfulness. And then he finds hope in reflecting on the fact that God is his portion. And he says, therefore, I have hope. In other words, he realized that his portion wasn't in Jerusalem. It wasn't in his earthly possessions. It wasn't in the temple. But it was in God himself. And it was in the eternal reward that comes from our relationship with God. And it gave him a perspective that despite his affliction, despite his darkness, God was going to be his because of his great mercy and his great compassion. We can go on in this passage for a long time, but as as we're looking at Jeremiah, you know, as he focused on the attributes of God, we see within himself there are fruits in his prayer, fruits of patience, humility, and acknowledgement of of the sovereignty of God. We see in verse 25 and 6, he says, the Lord is good for those who wait for them and for those who seek him. So in affliction, you know, God's just not going to take it away like that when we make our first prayer. But if we patiently wait on God in affliction and seek his face, we have the promise that God will hear us and come to us in his timing. We see the humility of Jeremiah. He's enduring the suffering, and we see that he offers his cheek to the one who might strike him. In other words, we think of Jesus, right, when he said to turn the other cheek. But it, it's, it's an acknowledgement that he's going to endure whatever comes his way and, and, and just submit himself to God's hand. And there's a, very, uh, there's a lesson in humility in that statement. You know, and lastly, we see how he acknowledges God's sovereignty and that he, he acknowledges that no matter what he's going through, it's not by random chance or because he has bad luck or because he's just, you know, that's just what happens to me. He, he acknowledges the fact that the suffering that God's people are going through is according to God's hand, but understanding that God didn't afflict the, the, the children of Israel willingly. He doesn't take pleasure in that, but he did that to chastise and develop his people and to accomplish his purpose through the suffering. And, and lastly, I'll end with this and then one last exhortation. 
you know, this is just something I think we can all uh, take comfort in, no matter where we are in our present circumstance. And that, you know, who is it who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Right? Is it not from the mouth of the Lord the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? If we're under God's blessing, let's praise God for his blessing. If we're under God's affliction, we'll praise God for his affliction because it's coming from him. So I think this morning we would be well served by following the godly example of Jeremiah that we can reflect, first of all, this morning on the mercy of God. And if last week, if you remember, we went through First Peter, we remembered that it was the mercy of God that was, it all started, the, the God's salvation towards us uh, through res- the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We'll be well, uh, well served to remember that God is our portion in this life. So no matter what we're focused on here and the now, everything around us is perishing, right? But what is eternal and what, you know, the moth and dust is not corrupt is what waits for us in heaven, the eternal inheritance by the mercy of God. And lastly, in trial, remember that God's fruits are being worked in us, that we learn patience, humility, and to focus on the future. And that's from the loving hand of our Almighty Father. May God bless us as we seek to serve. I don't know if you ever experienced this, but often as we are reading through a portion of Scripture and hearing the exhortation which is given, I'm going through the passage with a pen and I'm underlining particular verses or phrases that strike me and in that passage almost everything (laughs) is underlined it is an amazing thing isn't it that in a book called Lamentations God is so gracious to put that passage in the middle of it thank you brother for that exhortation this morning. Yeah. It makes you nervous. <laughs> He's expecting a call later in the week, right? <laughs> no, brother, so appreciative. Thank you. Father God, as much as we appreciate our brother John, Father, we appreciate you infinitely more. You are so good to us and so gracious, and we love you. And we thank you, Father, for the great encouragement that we find here in the midst of a book called Lamentations. We have hope, and we are so grateful. That hope comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we say, Father, with Jeremiah, great is your faithfulness. You are our portion. Father, forgive us for those times we forget. Forgive us, Father, when we seek to go our own way, to make our own way. Remind us, Father, that you are the Lord who keeps us and that no matter what we may be experiencing in the moment, 
feeling perhaps, Father, as if we are alone and as if you have perhaps abandoned us. Your word comes to us this morning to remind us that you will not reject us. You will have compassion and that you are abundant in your loving kindness. Thank you, Father, for these truths. We pray, Father, that your spirit would imprint them upon our hearts this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please turn with me to Psalm 119. We pick up this morning in our reading of the Psalms at verse 113 of Psalm 119. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are, hi- you are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to your word that I may live. And do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe that I may have regard for your statutes continually. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments." Father, once again, we come to you in the midst of this psalm which magnifies your word and we find ourselves, Father, desiring a heart like that of the psalmist. That we would hate those who are double-minded but that we would love your law. For your law, Father, is glorious. Your law is a reflection of who you are, your very character. And so, Father, as your people, we come to you today with that desire and with that request. Cause us to love your law. Cause us, Father, to turn away from those who do not those who the psalmist describes as being double-minded, evil doers, those who wander from your statutes, may that never be said of us. And may we never be content, Father, to have a superficial love for your word. May we always, Father, have a holy discontent with where we are now. May we desire your word. May we hunger for your word. May we thirst for your word. Place that within us, Father, because to know your word is to know you. Your word is how you sustain us. Your word is where we find hope. And once again, Father, we see how you bring all of these things together in our worship. As we read through Lamentations, Father, we find that we have hope. 
as we read here in the Psalms, we find that we have hope. You are the Lord of hope, and we praise you for it. No matter what we experience, Father, and I know that there are those in our fellowship who are enduring difficulty right now. But Father, remind them that there is hope. That you will not let them go. That if they are in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate them from the love of God. That there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Father, these all are statements that come from your word that give us hope. You will sustain us. You will keep us. You will perfect in us that which you began. That is, you will make us like unto our Savior, Jesus Christ. How can we not rejoice? Thank you for these things, Father. Raise up those who are downcast. Renew their vision of your glory. May they find strength in you. Father, for those who are drifting, we pray, Father, you would bring them to conviction and return them to a place of faithfulness. Draw them back, Father, when they desire to go far afield. For those, Father, who are not with us this morning because they have drifted from you and they have better things to do, Father, bring conviction to them concerning their need for the fellowship of God's people. For those who are caught up in those things that the world is offering to them, Father, draw them back. Show them the reality that the things of the world are but shiny baubles. It can offer nothing of lasting eternal value. Father, remind us all that you have given us one another. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, Father, there is a tie that binds us together. And we are to care for one another. We are to love one another. We are to encourage one another. We thank you, Father, for the church. We pray for our church that you would make us what you desire us to be. Give us those gifts that you desire us to have. That here in this place, we might be a light for the gospel that shines around the world. In all of this, Father, we desire that you be honored that the name of Christ be magnified and that the gospel be made known. In the name of Christ our Savior we ask it. Amen.
Let us uh, pray over the word as uh, we prepare for this morning's sermon. Father God, we are so grateful to you for your mercies that are new every morning, that we have a place to worship you. May your Holy Spirit go forth with power this morning as our pastor brings us your word. May this service glorify you, Father, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would take your Bibles, please return with me to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 6, we pick up in our study of the book of Leviticus with verse 24 this morning. We'll be looking at verse 24 through verse 30 at the end of the chapter. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. Anyone who touches its flesh will become consecrated. And when any of its blood splashes on a garment in a holy place, you shall wash what was splashed on. Also the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken. And if it was boiled in a bronze vessel, then it shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering of which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. Father, this is your word. We desire to understand, and we desire to see Christ here. May your Spirit, Father, enable us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we were, two weeks ago, we were looking at the previous passage here in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 19 through 23, and at the priestly grain offering. And we saw several things of note in that passage. First of all, we saw an emphasis on consecration. The way that Aaron and his sons were to express, were to visibly manifest their own consecration to the Lord was seen in the giving of this grain offering by priests, particularly at their ordination. That consecration through the offering of the grain, the bread, was an act whereby they said, this represents me. I am wholly yours. It was an offering of self-devotion, and it indicated that the priest was giving himself entirely to the Lord. 
This is one of the great distinctions between pagan offerings and the offerings set down in the Word of God in the Levitical law. It was understood the priests were not giving these grain offerings, these offerings of bread, because God was hungry. God didn't need their grain. God was interested in the people themselves. He was interested in what these offerings represented. And so the priest would come with his offering. It would be burnt entirely. And that would be his way of saying to the Lord, this is me. I am entirely yours. We also said that this priestly offering, like so many other offerings we've already seen, was given to emphasize the assurance of God's people that God had accepted them. It was offered up as a soothing aroma to the Lord, we're told. And we said that when the smoke was seen to arise into the heavens. As the offering was being consumed by fire, the people would see that and they would recognize that the offering had been accepted by God. It assured them that God had heard their cries and had forgiven them their sin. We also said that the priestly grain offerings spoke of the reconciliation which is necessary for communion with God. It is a permanent ordinance offered up entirely in smoke before the Lord. It was to be burned entirely and not eaten. And this is what set it apart from other offerings, other sacrifices. See, in other sacrifices, if you'll remember, the priest would be offering up a sacrifice which was brought to him by someone else. The people of Israel at large would bring their sacrifices to the tabernacle and later to the temple, and the priest would then be involved in kind of officiating over the sacrifice. We pastors talk about officiating at weddings and funerals. We end up kind of being the MC. The priest would officiate at these sacrifices. But it would be someone else's sacrifice. And so they would, because of their priestly role, they would get to eat a portion of that sacrifice. That's one of the ways in God, which God provided for the priesthood. And they would go out into the courtyard and they would consume a portion of this sacrifice. And when the people then would look at the priests consuming the sacrifice, they would know that the sacrifice had been offered and God had received it. When the priest comes to offer a sacrifice of his own, well, it doesn't make much sense to get back a part of what you're giving and so, in these sacrifices that we saw, the priest would not eat any of it. It would all be burnt up and offered to the Lord. 
And it would be the smoke which is emphasized in the realm of assurance and reconciliation. God had accepted it. And so the priests were sinful. They needed forgiveness too. And the daily offering of, uh, which was, was, was offered by the priests indicated that the restored communion which the people of God desired had been accomplished. We said that at the very repetition of this grain offering, the question was raised, who will mediate for the mediators? If the priest is the mediator for the people, standing between them and God, who mediates for the mediators? That's a question that is only answered in the New Testament. Because when we come to the New Testament, then we find that there is only one mediator between God and any man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. He's our mediator. The question that is raised through the offerings of the priest is left hanging in the Old Testament. We find the answer only when the Messiah, the Son of God, comes. Now he is the one who becomes a sacrifice for God's people. He is the one who becomes the priest for God's people. In Jesus, we have priest and sacrifice brought together. He offers up himself. Well, this week we turn to something obviously very closely related to this, and that is to the sin offering or the purification offering again. We looked at this from the standpoint of the people of God who bring this offering. We saw that back in Leviticus chapter 4. You'll remember that we're going back over some familiar territory in many of these uh, sacrifices. Early on in Leviticus, we find them mentioned from the perspective of God's people bringing the sacrifice. And then, beginning in chapter 6, we, we, we come back over some of the same territory again, looking at the same sacrifices, but now from the perspective of the priest. And that's what we're going to see today. There are three things that I want you to focus on in this passage today. And the first has to do again with assurance. And you see this in verses 25 and 26. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, this is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. So, as we begin to walk through this passage together, this is the first thing that we're going to see. There is a need for us to know that we have been forgiven, that we have been accepted by God, that we have been reconciled to Him. 
Moses here speaks to Aaron, and he is speaking to Aaron that which the Lord has spoken to Moses already. Remember, we're back here in Leviticus. We are in the wilderness. We've come out of Egypt. That's what we saw in the Exodus. God is giving his law to his people. And he's telling them how they are to conduct themselves as his holy nation. And in this portion of Leviticus, particularly, he's addressing now the priests, Aaron and his sons. As you function as priests over the people, this is how you are to do it. That's what we've been seeing all through Leviticus thus far. As you're offering up sacrifices for the people, here's how you do it. As you offer up sacrifices for yourselves, here's how you do it. And here we are dealing with the law of the sin offering. Throughout these offerings, we've seen Moses stress the need of the people of God to know that the offering which they have made for their sins has been accepted by God. Because one of the purposes of worship, brothers and sisters, is to come before the Lord to experience his blessing, the benefit of knowing that our sin has been forgiven and that which has kept us from God has been taken away. So that we now have reconciliation. We we now are able to come into the presence of God because that sin which once kept us from Him has been dealt with. Whenever we come to this place and we gather together on the Lord's day, we're coming in that knowledge. We come into this place and we do not come in the fear that we will be struck down by a holy God. We come in the joy and the assurance of knowing that Jesus paid the price for our sin. And because He is our mediator, we are welcomed into the presence of God. Indeed, He invites us into His presence, telling us to come boldly before the throne of grace. And we do not hesitate because of Jesus. And this began back here in Leviticus. Here's where we have a picture of what the atoning sacrifice accomplishes. There were various devices established within the ceremonial law of Israel designed to assure the worshiper that his offering of atonement had indeed been accepted by God and that he had been accepted by God because as we have been saying, the offering is simply a stand-in for the person. If God accepts the offering, it means he's accepted the person. The Lord knows our need for forgiveness and our need to know that we have been forgiven. And so there are several things going on here that are intended to communicate this to the worshiper who has brought this sin offering so that that worshiper would understand they have been forgiven. Let me just pull out a couple of them. First of all, in verse 25, we're told that the sacrifice is to be brought before the Lord. This is the law of the sin offering in that 
In the place where the burnt offering is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is understood that forgiveness comes from the Lord, and so the sacrifice is to be brought before the Lord. It is to be brought into his presence in the ritual precincts of the tent of meeting, because forgiveness comes from the Lord. And so the very place where the offering is brought is designed to assure the worshiper that the sacrifice is going to be accepted. Because the tabernacle where this is taking place is where the Lord comes to meet with his people. And so we're not going to take a sacrifice out into the wilderness. God's not there. Not there in the ceremonial sense. Obviously, God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. But in terms of meeting with his people and offering forgiveness of sin, that takes place at the tabernacle. That's where the glory of God comes. And then also notice that the death penalty is enacted upon the sacrifice. The sacrifice is slain before the Lord. In in fact, in verse 25, we find this emphasized twice. In the place where the burnt offering is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is most holy. Again, in verse 26, we're told that the priest who has assisted in the offering of the sacrifice is to eat in that place. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. This portion of the sin sacrifice is eaten by the priest, again, to assure the worshiper that the offering is acceptable according to God's commands. The worshiper, then, has confidence that he has been accepted by God. And furthermore, note that it is to be eaten in the precincts of the tent of meeting, a holy place, verse 6 says, in the court of the tent of meeting. So the priest is to go out into the court publicly, visibly, when he eats of this sacrifice. Why? So that the one who has offered the sacrifice can see it and know that the sacrifice has been offered in accordance with the commands of God. And Moses' seriousness about these particular charges, these commands, is brought into bold relief when we turn just a few chapters ahead into Leviticus chapter 10. Many of you will be familiar with Leviticus chapter 10. It's probably one of the two most familiar chapters in Leviticus, the other being Leviticus chapter 16, which is concerned with the Day of Atonement. But Leviticus 10 is the chapter where we have the story of Nadab and Abihu. If you're not familiar, you will be saying Nadab and Abihu who? Nadab and Abihu were sons of Aaron, and they didn't turn out too well. But if you look past that story, just turn over there for a few moments. Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu were sons of of Aaron, and so they were functioning as priests, but they decided they were going to do things their own way. 
We've spoken a great deal in our study of Leviticus about how God is very particular about how he is worshipped. Nadab and Abihu didn't understand this, and so they offered strange fire to the Lord. They worshipped the Lord in a way that he had not commanded them to. The Lord didn't really care for this, and so they are struck dead. But again, if you look past that story and look all the way down to verse 16, you'll find this very interesting piece of history. Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it had been burned up. So he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. Let's just pause there, right? This sin offering had been brought in, and instead of being eaten, as we're seeing back in Leviticus 6, instead of being eaten by the officiating priest, the whole thing had been burned up. And so we're told this in verse 16 as the explanation for why Moses was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy. And he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary, just as I commanded. Moses is angry with the priests. Why? Because they have not eaten their portion of the sin offering out in the court of the tabernacle so that the people could see and be assured that their sacrifice had been accepted by God. Now Aaron has a response to this. In verse 19, he says, Behold, this very day they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. When things like these happened to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? Now, what's Aaron talking about? saying, Moses... My sons were killed today. God struck down my sons today. And you want me to sit down and eat the remaining portion of this sin offering as a sign of restored fellowship before the Lord? I am not in any kind of shape to do that. And notice Moses' response in verse 20. When Moses heard that, it seemed good in his sight. There was a relenting on the part of Moses. But you see how serious God was about assuring his people of the forgiveness of sin. He's ready to say to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, Look, you failed to do that which is necessary for the assurance of my people even though your sons and your brothers died today. This commitment on God's part, 
that his people should have assurance of their acceptance by him is no less stark when we come into the new covenant. We have signs that God has given us in the new covenant that we have been accepted and that our offering for sin on our behalf has been accepted. We could give many answers to this, but let me just point to one. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews Hebrews chapter 10. We've looked at this passage before. I'm sure we'll look at it again. Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 11 and 12. We looked at this when we were considering the priest's daily offering of the grain offering. But listen to these words of the Lord once more. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And you see what the author of Hebrews is saying. That sign, the evidence, the witness that God has given to you of the once and for all efficacy of Jesus Christ's offering for his atoning sacrifice, the sign that this is accepted is that he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus gave himself as the offering. He was placed in the tomb. Three days later, he rose again. Some weeks later, he ascended to his father and he sat down at the right hand of God. I'm up here this morning and I'm walking around. I'm standing. Why? Because I'm not done yet. And I don't want to hear any jokes about wishing I was. I'm not. And so I have not sat down. The time will come when I get home this afternoon and I will sit down. More likely lay down. Why? Because I will be finished. Jesus sat down at the right hand of His Father because He was done His redemptive work was complete. He fulfilled the purposes for which He had come. He had saved a people for His own possession. And then He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Just turn back to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. This is emphasized again. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. In other words, 
the author of Hebrews is saying, here is the sign that God has given to you, that you have been forgiven of your sin as you trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has ascended on high to the Father and has sat down at the right hand. And that is the sign. That is God's witness to you. That if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, you have been accepted. God has accepted you. He has adopted you as His child. As Jesus' disciples see Him ascending to glory, one of the things that they are seeing is a visible, tangible manifestation that God has forgiven the sin of all who will trust in His Son Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That's what the disciples were seeing as they stood on that hill and watched Christ ascend into the clouds. As God was serious about his people being assured of forgiveness of their sin under the old covenant through this sacrificial ritual in Leviticus chapter 6, even to the point of being angry with Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, even on the day of their sons and brothers' death, God has, in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, given you a witness that your sin has been forgiven. That's how seriously God takes the assurance of his people. God does not want you to waver between faith and doubt. God does not want you to wonder constantly, am I really His? Has He really saved me? That's why the Scripture is full of the promises of God. That if you will trust in Him by faith, He will receive you. This is God's promise. And God is faithful to His promise. So brothers and sisters, if you you wonder, and if you waver, you have to know where to look in order to gain your assurance. And you don't look at yourself. You don't look at your own faithfulness. You don't look at your own righteousness. You look to Jesus Christ who sat down at the right hand of the Father. And you look at the Scripture where God gives us His promises that He will never leave us or forsake us. And that He who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's where our assurance lies. Not in here... If I were to look at myself, I would never have assurance. But I don't look at myself. I look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Still sitting at the right hand of the Father. Because His sacrifice accomplished all that was necessary for me to come into that relationship with God. Now come back with me to Leviticus 6 once more. 
And look especially at verses 27 and 28. We see something here of the sinfulness of sin and the necessity of atonement. Anyone who touches its flesh will become consecrated. And when any of its blood splashes on a garment in a holy place, you shall wash what was splashed on. Also the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken. And if it was boiled in a bronze vessel, then it shall be scoured and rinsed with water. Here we find the instructions that are given, emphasizing the need for priests to convey to the people of God the holiness of these things which are involved in the atoning sacrifices. What a holy thing it is to bring an atoning sacrifice before the Lord. Just note what we're finding here in these two verses, emphasizing the holiness of the sacrifices. Notice first that anyone who touches these sacrifices, simply by touching them, becomes ritually holy, becomes consecrated. Anyone who touches its flesh will become consecrated. What's the point? An atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice for sin, is a holy thing. It is not to be taken lightly. It is not to be treated casually. Second, notice again in verse 27, if any of the blood of the sacrifice incidentally or accidentally splatters on the garments of the officiating priest, that garment not only has to be cleaned, but it has to be cleaned there at the tabernacle. It can't be taken to the nearby Hebrew laundry. It's got to be clean, cleaned right there on the grounds in the tent of meeting. That's how holy this sacrifice for sin is that's being offered for God's people. Then look at verse 28. Also the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken and if it was boiled in a bronze vessel, then it shall be scoured and rinsed in water. So if a clay vessel is used to boil and to convey at least a part of this sacrifice, after that clay vessel has performed its duty, it is to be destroyed because it is holy and it can't be used for anything else. Well, you can't do that with a bronze vessel, though. So with a bronze vessel, you're going to scour it. You're going to rinse it before it is used again. Again, in verses 28 and 29, after that has been done, we're told in verse 29, every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. Only the male priests, only the males of the Aaronic line, the priesthood of Israel, are allowed to partake in the remains of the portion of the sacrifice which has remained. There were some sacrifices that were allowed to be used by the entire family of the priest, but there were some that were reserved only for the priests in order to emphasize and convey this 
understanding of holiness in the atoning sacrifice. By conveying the holiness of the sacrifice, we get something of a sense of the gravity of sin, which we need to understand because our tendency is to minimize sin. God sees sin in a much different way than we do. And he wants us to understand that. He wants us to have his perspective on sin, not our own. Because our own perspective on sin is always going to be say, to, to say, eh, it's not really that bad, is it? You think about your own sin. You know how your mind works. I'm not as bad as that guy. And feel free to point at me. God wants us to know you can't minimize sin. The wages of sin is death. That should tell you what God thinks about sin. And He doesn't grade on a curve. One sin is worthy of death. And I don't think any of us here want to try to make the claim that we have only sinned once. In fact, the reality is that we are condemned of God by virtue of simply being a human being. Because we are born into sin. We have inherited sin. And then we act on what we have inherited. We act according to our nature. So you are a sinner. And the reason you sin is because you are a sinner. Don't get it backwards. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Everything about us is fallen and needs to be reclaimed and restored. And that's what the Father has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're intended to see here. The atonement is necessary, and the provision of God for atonement of His people is holy. Andrew Bonar wrote one of the greatest commentaries on the book of Leviticus, and he did it a couple of hundred years ago now. And he said this, All these sacrifices were to be regarded with awful reverence, for it was as if the worshippers were standing at the cross where the, where, where the Marys stood and saw the Savior die. Or it was like the heavenly hosts when they saw the disembodied soul of the Redeemer come in before the Father at the moment the last might was paid, and he had cried, It is finished. Was there ever such an hour in heaven? Or shall there ever be such an hour in heaven or earth? Even in the act of accepting the atonement made, how solemnly does the soul feel that receives it? See Isaiah when the live coal touches his lips. What then must have been the hour when atonement itself was spread out complete? The hour when a lost sheep returns is solemn. But what is this to the hour when the shepherd himself returns?
this ritual treatment of the holiness of the sin sacrifice points to the infinite holiness and value and purity of the one who was offered as a sacrifice for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, if we look at verse 30, we notice that when the priest is offering up a sin or purification offering, not for an individual worshiper or for a ruler from the congregation, but for the priests or for the whole community, including the priests, no part of that sin offering is to be eaten. It is to be entirely completely burned with fire. No sin offering of which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. Now we know from Leviticus chapter 4 that those were the offerings that were offered for the whole community including the priests, offered on behalf of the priests. So there were sacrifices in which the blood was brought into the tent of meeting, and there were sacrifices in which that wasn't the case. But if the blood is brought into the tent of meeting, that's a sin offering on behalf of either the priests themselves or on behalf of the whole people. No matter what, those offerings are not to be consumed by the priests. Because in those kinds of offerings, the priests themselves have an interest in it. We've discussed that before. If you're giving an offering, you're making a sacrifice. You don't take back part of the sacrifice for yourself. The sacrifice is given whole, and that's what was going on here. And so one of the things this reminds us of is that there are, there are different aspects of sin and, and purification, sacrifice highlights different truths. When the priests partake of the offering, it indicates to us our restored fellowship with God, and so the offering functions to assure us that our restored fellowship has been accomplished when we see the priest eating it. But when the priest does not partake of it and the offering is not completely offered up to the Lord in a burnt offering, the entireness, the completeness of the congregational purification indicates to us the entirety of the Savior's work. The transfer of the offerer's guilt, especially when the whole community is involved, the transfer of the offerer's guilt to that sin sacrifice is so complete that the whole victim is consumed, whether it be a bull or a goat or what have you. And this so beautifully shows to us the entireness, the completeness of the sacrifice necessary to restore fellowship between God and his people when his people have violated all the terms of their relationship with him. We're reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what these sacrifices are pointing toward. 
Our passage this morning points to the way that God assures us of our acceptance by the atoning work of Christ. And it points to the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of that offering of God's only Son. And it points to the entirety, the completeness of the provision for sin which has been made in Jesus. Jesus didn't need to do anything else. When Jesus said it is finished, it was finished. He didn't need to endure any more pain. He didn't need to shed another drop of blood. Jesus accomplished on that cross everything that was necessary for the salvation of every individual who would turn from their sin in repentance and place their faith and trust in Him alone. The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient. It is sufficient for me alone. It is sufficient for all who are here. It is sufficient for you. No matter what sin you can dredge up from your past, look back over your life and pull up all of the horrid things that you have said and you have done, and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover it. Your sin is not greater than the grace of God. Christ paid it all. He paid the penalty for your sin if you will trust in Him. You cannot come to God on your own terms. You cannot be good enough. You have nothing to offer Him. You cannot come into His presence and say, Lord, thanks for everything you've done. Here's what I've contributed. You have contributed nothing. You have only offended a holy God. You have only come under His condemnation. But that same holy God is a God of grace and mercy. And so He has sent His Son to pay the penalty which you could never pay after living the life you could never live. A life without sin. A life of perfection. And then He went to the cross. And the one who knew no sin became sin. So that anyone, even you, could come to Him in repentance and faith. In the assurance that you would be accepted. That's the grace of our God this morning. It is enough for you. Father, thank you for this. What great, amazing, magnificent grace. None of us deserved it. And yet, Father, you gave the greatest gift of all the great gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have eternal life. It is our prayer, Father, 
that those who have not known this great and wonderful truth might come to understand it today. In Jesus' name, amen. In all of our discussions of these sacrifices that we're seeing in the book of Leviticus, we have said that what we're finding in these sacrifices are pointers. They're symbols. They're pointing us to Jesus. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, this is also what we find. The bread and the cup point us to Jesus. They are nothing in and of themselves but bread and grape juice. That's all. They don't transform. They don't save. If you come to the table with us this morning... you will be only as saved afterwards as you were before. So what are we doing this for? Well, first and most simply, we're doing it because we've been commanded to do it. We've been told to do this until Jesus comes, and so we will. But Paul helps us understand why when he repeats the words of Jesus at the Last Supper and he says, you do this in remembrance of me. That is, God desires that his people gather together as we are gathered here this morning. And that having gathered together, we participate in this ordinance so that together we are remembering everything we've just been talking about. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And that our salvation is located in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God thinks it's important that we do this together. Because God understands that what he is doing is saving not just individual persons, but a people, a church. And so he desires that his church come together and remember. Paul also says that while we do this, we are making a proclamation We've referred to the elements at the table as symbols. And so they are. They are symbols which communicate together in celebration. 
gospel we have already proclaimed a human being walking the salvation and God is who being with and took upon himself believes in him and as we partner that proclaim so if some point in your life that, and you have turned from your sin if your gospel and useful is not for you that you're here we love you of Jesus Christ we forgiveness that we have experienced this table is not Lord's people and not participate Paul Corinthians chapter 11 as he whoever eats and shall be guilty of the by himself the cup for he if he does not and so take this time to do what Paul sent of any unconfessed participate with us thanks for the bread please father it is take up on the cross there is none left for us that if we are in Christ Jesus there is no more condemnation for us we are now able to live free in faith to our lord jesus christ hmm. rejoicing in what he's done that we are willing to spread the gospel as far as the four corners of the earth so that others might also enjoy the grace and mercy of god amen father may you be glorified in our obedience in taking of these elements to remember the great work that you have accomplished on the cross to your name be the glory forever and ever amen amen
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. John, give thanks for the cup, please. Father, as we've been reminded this morning, to come into your presence is an awesome thing. You are holy. We thank you for sending Jesus who shed his blood. That through faith and his finished work on the cross, we too can be holy as his righteousness was given to us. We're so grateful to you, Father. We praise you for the cup. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. stand together as we sing my faith has found a resting place I hope that is true of you this morning